right. Welcome to the Medical Liability Minute. I'm your host, founder and CEO of Medical Justice. I'm Jeff Siegel. Today, I'm excited to have as our guest, Dr. Len Tao, that's spelled T-A-U. I believe he's the first dentist that we've had uh, as, um, as someone to interview on the podcast. So I'm really excited. Let me give you his brief background, and this will give it color. So he was chosen as one of the top leaders in dental consulting by dentistry today. Uh, Dr. Tao has dedicated his professional life to improving dentistry for patients and other dentists. After purchasing his practice, the Pennsylvania Center for Dental Excellence, this is in Philadelphia in 2007, he practiced full-time while consulting to other dental practices, training thousands of dentists about reputation marketing, something that we really focus a lot on, and leading the dental division of BirdEye Reputation Marketing Platform, as well as hosting the popular Raving, Pod, uh, Raving Patients podcast, and we'll give people information on that at the end so you can plug that. He recently authored the book, Raving Patients and 100 Plus Tips to 100 Five Star Reviews in 100 Days, released in March 2022, probably useful for 100 years, I would think. In 2018, Len cut down to practicing dentistry two days a week to focus additional time and attention to helping other dentists build broad and compelling online footprints to attract hundreds of new patients to their practices. In October of last year, he sold his dental practice but continues to uh, but continued to provide his patients dental care two days a week while commuting down to Parkland, Florida, where he has resided since October of 2020. In July of 2022, Len announced his retirement from clinical practice, uh, effective December of 2022. So it's around the corner, and by the time I read that, he may have well retired, but we will see in just a minute. He lectures nationally and internationally and using internet marketing, social media, and reputation marketing to make dental offices more visible and credible, as well as how to increase their case acceptance. And you will find this valuable um, whether you are a dentist and especially if you're not. So this is going to be valuable for all of our members, uh, all the people listening, because everybody has an interest in marketing, whether you think you need it or not. Welcome, Len. Thanks for joining us today. Well, Jeff, thank you so much. I appreciate the uh, the introduction. I couldn't have, have uh, written it better myself, but uh, thank, <laughs> thank you for, for that great introduction. I appreciate it. And I'm excited to, uh, to speak to you and your audience today. So let's start back with where we met. So we met at a common conference. It was the Global Aesthetic Conference. I presented there before. I don't know if you've presented there in the past. I did not. I've only presented at the MAC meeting, which was the sister meeting in California that he launched in August of this year. So it was the MAC and now the GAC. Uh, the GAC, okay. So anyway, um, you and I were um, on the same panel, meaning that we, um, we were there to talk about the ins and outs of online reviews. And my topic was about how to respond without violating HIPAA. And I used as an example, a, uh, an unfortunate dentist in my home state, uh, North Carolina, who decided, oh God, close to a decade ago, probably a little less, to respond to an, an ugly review. And it was an ugly review, but instead of just you know, speaking broadly and generally and saying, let's take it up privately, he decided uh, to respond by going all out. He basically um, put up fireworks, uh, threw out some TNT, and um, outed this patient. And not only did he out him, but he, he called him different names. I think he implied that he was a moron, an idiot, and uh, he should get his care elsewhere. 
Um, and, and so I used that as an example of what not to do because this morphed into a giant uh, HIPAA complaint and over the years and turned into a $50,000 fine. And, and wouldn't you know it, you had that same slide too. We, we had not met before, we had not colluded, we had not uh, conversed, yet there we were um, at an aesthetic conference talking about a dental patient um, and it was the same freaking patient. So I thought I thought we had bonded uh, considerably and it was time for us to, uh, to spend some more time together. But you remember yeah. that case, do you uh, not? Of course I do. I talk about it at all my seminars that I give to dentists and, and now obviously plastic surgeons and other people other industries because it really proves a point as to you know what you should or should not do um and what you can't and cannot do and and especially in dentists you know they they ask about OSHA and they ask about HIPAA there are HIPAA police and the HIPAA police are out there that if you do something stupid and then uh, or in this case he was a douchebag because he they simply asked him to edit his review and they would have taken all the, the the bad stuff away and he chose not to he chose to ignore the office of civil rights um, so I use it as a war kind of a warning shot to dentists out there because you, know, you don't want to be the the dentist who I get to speak about at all my seminars. You do not want to be that one. <laughs> and me too. And me too. You you don't want to be the the protagonist in our epic stories that we present. Um, and while there are plenty of stories that are out there, it's probably helpful to. Um, it's just easier for us to recycle the old ones. Hundred percent so. We so how did you get into the review space? Um, if you go back to your origin story, it looks like you started your practice in 2007. At that time, um, reviews may maybe happened on Amazon, but there wasn't much in the world going on. Tell us about your origin story here. And that's great because, uh, as you know, you're on my we re recorded a podcast episode, and and the first episode of my podcast for for 2023. It's called the origin story of the reviews doctor, which is my nickname in the dental industry. So I'm actually planning to, I have to record my episode, but uh, it's great origin story of, of what I've done. So I bought my practice in 2007 um, in Philadelphia, Northeast Philadelphia from a dentist who had committed suicide. So I bought it under very extraneous circumstances. Um, I was new to owning a business. I had been practicing dentistry as an associate for the previous seven years. So I was a long time dentist, but not a long time business owner. And um, but I chose this practice because it didn't we didn't accept insurance. There was no uh, insurance participation. And um, I was eighteen thousand dollars in debt after buying the practice. I gutted the building. I redid the building. So anybody walking in would not recognize it. And um, I started to market my practice. I spent lots of money. Tried many well, different how long things. did it take for you to kind of build it out? And were you still working in a prior practice or you would really taking time off and just threw yourself into renovation here. No, I went, I went all in. So the practice I bought in, in uh, March of, of 2000, March 19th to be exact March 19th of 2007. And we started the renovation in July of, of 2007, uh, right after I purchased the, the building from the, the estate. And um, we actually had, had designed the office to be, uh, there would be a, a, like a, a walkway down the center um, and so half the office was was redesigned. I worked on the one side, and then half the office was 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 blocked off. And then I worked on the other side. So I worked the entire time. I didn't take any time off. I was working. I went all put all my chips in. So um, spent. Must be kind of scary though, was it not? Um... It was scary. On top of it, I just bought a home. 
And I just had my son born in, in May of 2007. Reef of Charm. You might as well, if you're going to take stressors, you might as well pile on, correct? Yeah, yeah. You can't you can't do more than than what I did in one full swoop there. So, but uh, my, all my ships were in. I Again, I was about $18,000 in debt. I needed to, to bring new patients into my practice, although it was a really good practice that I bought. And I went out to the, the gurus, the dental industry, and said, help me market my practice. I didn't like what they told me or what they told me didn't work. So mm -hmm. I decided to teach myself and I did. I taught myself marketing. I taught myself what to do and I went to the right people to help me do it and I was really successful. And one of the, the biggest things I saw was when I asked patients why they chose my office. Um, in 2009, 2010, the reviews really started to make a big difference. And I'm sure you're familiar with a program that probably was uh, it's called Demand Force. Uh, Demand Force was a was a patient communication platform that I was using, and when they were generating the reviews, they had a relationship with Google that Google would take those reviews and put it onto the Google reviews as an and it would be added to the number you got. And you, so you had offices with a thousand reviews, eight hundred reviews, you know, fifty reviews. I had a, a couple hundred, and I was far ahead of anybody in Philadelphia. And I started to see that patients were coming in. They said, well, I read your great reviews and, and, and something started to trigger, okay? Now, so I started to collect my own reviews on Google just in case something ever happened with the relationship with Google that Demand Force had. And lo and behold, in 2012, that bubble burst. And literally overnight, dentists went from having a thousand reviews to zero, okay? Ouch. Overnight, because demand force, uh, Google pulled the relationship with all third-party companies, and it, you only needed to have Google reviews at that point, and that was not a thing yet. And I had 35 of them at that point, and was still getting patients to come in because of those 35 reviews. So um, I started speaking um, in 2010. I was asked to speak at my very first conference, which now has turned into over 450 speaking engagements over the last 12 years. And I became passionate about educating people on things that they didn't know, and I knew very well. And um, as I was speaking, no joke, I would get dentists in the back of the room to call me up on the phone during the seminar and saying, dude, you're teaching things that I couldn't imagine ever doing. I need your help. I want to hire you as a consultant. And I would tell these people, like, I'm a dentist. I still have many years of loans to pay back. I have yeah. no interest in doing consulting. I got to focus on my practice. Um, after about five or six opportunities i finally i finally said you know what they wanted i'm going to give it to them so i created a, a social a, a um, consulting company called iSocial dental consulting and what iSocial dental consulting did was it was to create strategic marketing plans for dentists to grow their practice but i didn't like the typical consulting model i didn't like traveling and spending a day or two in their office um, i needed some other way to make money and I decided that reviews were going to be the way to go because that was the main way I was getting my patients. My reputation mm -hmm. was preceding me, and patients came in because of that reputation. So I went out to an engineer. Yeah, um, let, let me I just do. take let me let me just pause yeah. for a second because sure. it's interesting. You bring up a really important point, which is, um, I would say maybe ten years ago we started hearing the term reputation management. Reputation management, which means you need to manage your reputation. But I, I've always embraced and loved the term reputation marketing because it's presumed that if you're in healthcare, you're probably good. You should be good. You should at least have some minimum standards. And if that's true, you should be, you sh you should be shouting from the rooftops 
you know, how great you are as opposed to managing. When I think of manage, I'm talking about managing expectations. So I know it sounds like a, a subtle distinction, but I think it's an important distinction with language. Huge distinction. I actually coined the phrase reputation marketing. That was something I said we need to start doing. And I always say to, to people now, if you see a company that says, you know, on their booth, reputation management, that is such an old term. It shouldn't be using anymore. That's like reverse SEO, getting a bad review off of the first page of Google. You need to generate five stars reviews and market it so people come in because of it. That's what reputation marketing is. And it's something that I've been beating into people's heads for 10 years now. So um, another term I, I, I coined was a term called, instead of a video testimonial, a video trustimonial, because that's mm. what these videos you do do. They create trust with your patients. So those are two of the, the things I take credit for in the industry are really focusing on, on bringing those to the forefront. Um, you know, um, reputation marketing is such an important way to market your business, especially um, for a medical practitioner. Like you said, you, you would assume that most medical practitioners have good reviews. Okay. But if you deal with the wrong patients or you have a problem in the way you, you deal with patients, that could backfire on you and you could have some bad reviews go online and you don't want someone clicking on reviews and seeing the most relevant review was two months ago that it was a bad review. So the goal of a practice is to provide the best service, whether you're in the medical or dental space, and your patients should want to go online and talk about you. And that's what this whole thing's about. So um, then migrate from there. Where did you go from iSocial? Because that was your consulting business and you were propelling yep. the whole notion that reviews were important. You were in front of the game before um, the other entities started taking off. Um, and now you've essentially retired from the practice of clinical dentistry. Tell me, you know, where you went with that and your thoughts on just how reviews do make a difference. Uh, and we'll talk about positive reviews, we'll talk about negative reviews, and we'll talk about HIPAA, we'll, we'll talk about a few of these things as we go forward. Yeah, you know, in, in I did not like the consulting model, but I liked to make extra money. And I decided that I was going to create a piece of software that made it easy for dentists to generate reviews because all of the other products on the market that were out there were were long, they were difficult, um, I needed something easy and I went to an engineer and I said, hey, I, I want to build a product like this. Can can we develop something? And we did. And in, in January of 2013, I, I attended my first dental trade show at the Yankee Dental Meeting in Boston, Massachusetts. Called them up, said, you don't know who I am. I've never been at your event before, but I am a, a startup company. I need remnant space. I need I literally just stick me in the back as far back. I just need to come for cheap. And. The price of the software then was priced $397 a month with a $497 setup fee. Went to the show, no marketing other than a booth, which I'm, I I laugh at every time I look at it with how much words were written. And I sold nine dentists and I proved my concept. And I said, dentists are going to want to buy this. And I proceeded to start going to trade show after trade show after trade show. And after 18 months, I had 180 dentists using my product. I had about $720,000 in revenue. I was like, holy cow. I still remember going to my wife and saying to her, I'm going to sort of, I'm going to get into online reviews. And she goes, yep, you go there, have fun, never expecting it to be what it is today. I mean, the review game has grown so much over the years. Um, I had written an article uh, in Dental Town Magazine uh, about how bad Yelp was for businesses, especially dentists. And I got... Um, that drew the ire of Yelp to my practice in and of itself, but um, it also drew the attention of the owners at BirdEye, and BirdEye reached out to me in 2014 
wanting to acquire my company from me. And at first I was like, nah, this is too, I don't want to sell out too soon. I enjoy doing what I'm doing, but I never got into it to develop a software. I got in it to prove a concept and, and to sell something. Um, and I didn't want to develop it anymore. So I said after another couple of months that I would, uh, I would sell off to BirdEye. So BirdEye acquired my company. They got rid of my IP. They did take some of my ideas I had within the software. Um, but mostly they got rid of it. They brought me on as a consultant. Um, and I joined BirdEye as a, as a consultant. They took my billing and they wanted my revenue as well, which was a big thing for them. Um, and lo and behold, um, here we are eight years later. I've been with them for eight years. We have just shy of 10,000 dental offices using the software. I've spoken over 450 times now around the country on, on marketing and, and reputation. And my entire career is different because, you know, 12 years ago or 10 years ago now, you know, who would ever think that at 49 years old, I would be retired from dentistry. I actually retired last Tuesday was my last clinical day. And um, I would have moved to Florida, have a whole different lifestyle. So it's pretty amazing what's happened over the years. But um, I couldn't imagine any differently. I was, uh, I'm thrilled with what happened. And I'm going to enjoy the next, you know, part of my, my, the next chapter of my life doing other things now. Did you enjoy practicing as a dentist? I loved dentistry. I loved treating patients. Um, I loved the, the business aspect of things. I loved running the business, but I became um, un, I, I became disenchanted with dealing with the uh, patients that were out there, the, the expectations. Um, honestly, the, I had a great team, but even the expectations of the team, I didn't enjoy those parts of the business. And I knew that um, I, I would be better off finding, uh, I will, using the other passions that I have. And I was very fortunate. You know, you go to dental school, you become a dentist. You know, there are dentists who work for 35, 40, 50 years, and they don't do anything else other than dentistry. I was able to find something else to do, speaking, consulting, bird eye, and a list goes on and on and on. And I found a way out of what we call the operatory and were able, was able to transition to a different career at 49 years old. Um, it sounds like you were an entrepreneur who happened to be a dentist and understood healthcare and then ultimately um, made a lateral move into other aspects of healthcare, but primarily you you were and are an entrepreneur. And, and I would say that with the best of them, I started the baseball card business at 13 years old, making $60,000 a year, sold it when I went to college at 17 and the, the market dropped. It's not, it was never like what it is now, of course, the healthcare, the, the uh, trading card uh, space or the collectible space, but I've always been an entrepreneur at heart. And and yes, I would say that I was an entrepreneur disguised in a dentist's body, and I just used the opportunity to to do something else and and make sure that we um, make sure I I went out there and and created. And people ask me all the time. I want to be very clear. People ask me all the time, you know, why I got out of dentistry, and I got out of dentistry because I was passionate about other things. Um, you know, you, you, you actually brought up a really sore point about the baseball cards. Let me just briefly elaborate. So when I was a kid, I had a gazillion baseball cards. I had some amazing cards. I had uh, Mickey Mantle. I had Roger Maris. I had all of these. And they were sitting uh, in my closet um, gathering cobwebs for a period of time. And while I went away to college, my mother threw them away. Oh, gone. I had thousands of them gone entirely. And I only found out about it, you know, when I started going to medical school, I was, I went back to just kind of get some stuff and I go, what happened to this? Oh, honey, you know, we cleaned up. We, we, and when, when I say cleaned up, I mean, she threw them away. She didn't, uh, 
she didn't clean up from a monetary perspective. So that's anyway, terrible. Yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's, happened so, that's happened to so many people that I've spoken to over the years. They tell me some very similar story. Um, and, uh, but I was, I was still very fortunate. I worked very hard for what I've achieved. You know, I consider myself or I'm considered a key opinion leader in the dental space. Um, but I've worked very hard to achieve that. And it's taken me a long time to achieve that. Um, which is, you know, now we're talking about since 2010, I would say it started. So it's going on 13 years that I've developed and, and created, um, who I am in the industry today. So I'm, I'm extremely fortunate, but I, I'm definitely a hard worker. But no, I definitely found an, an, an out, and I definitely um, was excited to um, exit the the practice of dentistry and focus on helping other practices grow is really what it comes down to. You know, it's fascinating. You know, while um, well, how many dentists are there in the country? You must have a, a feel for 250,000. So it's a big number. It's a quarter of a million. There are probably 800,000 licensed physicians in the country. So, I mean, that's a giant chunk. Uh, of healthcare, yet fa interestingly enough, most physicians do not cross paths with dentists except as potential patients in, in both directions. Meaning that physicians uh, will be a patient of a dentist and vice versa. And I I'm trying to look back in terms of doing collaborative care. And as a neurosurgeon, we would take a trauma call, and then for facial trauma, the plastic surgeons would alternate call nights with oral surgeons. So frequent, in the middle of the night, you know, someone would put their head through a windshield and I'd be there, you know, um, hand in hand with an oral surgeon at one in the morning having having fun. But that, but that was limited. I mean, we really had very limited interactions unless there were multidisciplinary procedures. I mean, honestly, we just never saw one another. And it's, it's so fascinating. I can probably say the same thing about ophthalmology. I just, you know, once once we were out of medical school, we didn't run into uh, these individuals. Yeah, there is very little crossover. Um, I had a referral relationship with somebody um, to, that, that was close to my office for medical stuff. But other than that, you know, there's no crossover at the meetings. There's very minimal, which was, was nice when they asked me to speak at the plastic surgery meeting. I'm like, this is a great way to cross over. It's, it's as close to the dental industry as possible, in my opinion. So it was really good to speak to another another industry that was close to what I work with already and they really enjoyed what I did. So I got so many comments afterwards because I bring a different flavor to the business. And there are a number of dentists because they have long-term relationships with patients that have gotten into the aesthetic space. Um, some dabbling just by doing um, Botox, fillers, et cetera, and some going all in doing surgical procedures. So, I mean, it varies depending upon background training experience, the rules of the state and um, level of comfort. Yeah, my the, the owner that, um, the new owner of my practice, who is my associate, she joined me in 2020 during COVID. And then she bought my practice a little over a year later. Um, she got into the aesthetic space. So she does uh, you know, dermal fillers and Botox and those types of things um, in the practice. And she seems fairly successful and she enjoys doing it. Um, so she's one of the examples of someone who's gotten into it. I know, I know an oral surgeon um, in North Carolina that brought in a, a, a plastic surgeon into the practice to do other types of surgery, you know, within the practice. So mm -hmm. I, there is some mix in that sense, but in generally you don't see that. No, it's interesting. And the other thing that um, where there's overlap is the whole concept of sedation. So if you go back 20, 25 years, you know, sedation was something associated with anesthesia, and it was done in a hospital and then it's worked its way into surgery centers with you know for minor procedures like colonoscopies and the like and then ultimately sedation took off 
for dentistry. And typically, I mean, for the most part, you've seen the rules and regulations go up over time in terms of the restrictions uh, related to it. And, and not, no surprise. I mean, I, I think that if you've got a propofol infusion going into a patient's vein, you, it's really hard to be in two places at one time. So you probably do need another individual uh, eyeballing uh, the patient. So I, I do get that. But what? any thoughts on, on the observation of how sedation and dentistry have uh, come together over the past decade or so, or even beyond that? Yeah, it's really interesting you say that because I never even considered at any point in my dental career about doing sedation in my office or working on sedation patients. It's not something I had any interest in. And when Dr. Hahn, Christine Hahn, who is the new owner of the practice, came in as the associate, she brought it to my attention that she wanted to do, we mentioned, I mentioned Botox and I was fine with it. And she mentioned that she met a, a, um, a traveling dental anesthesiologist mm-hmm. through social media and wanted to know if I would be okay with her doing sedation cases. And I said, sure, why not? And, and literally within a couple of weeks, she had three or four cases on the books. Um, and they're, you know, they're long cases, obviously, um, multiple thousands and thousands of dollars. Um, and I would say in the last two years, she's probably done eight or nine cases with this anesthesiologist in the office. Um, and it, when I was the owner, I couldn't believe um, how quickly that scaled um, where she was doing, I would say on average once a month. Um, but I, I was so surprised to see that. And I think it's a, a definite need in the industry. There are so many patients who are scared about coming to the dentist that require sedation, but it never even crossed my mind. It was really interesting. Now well, it's I funny. It yeah, so my wife actually had it done. Why? She went her entire life without having a cavity. So she's got perfect teeth, you know, as it relates to and me. On the other hand, I can't say that I've had that that same stellar track record. But anyway, um, so it turned out she had a cavity. They tried doing the drilling. First, they just put some local anesthetic in there. And it's not that she experienced pain. She just could not take the vibration. The vibration just sent her through the roof. And then they gave her some nitrous. Did it help? No, it didn't. So finally, he said, look, what's next? And so it was an infusion. And she had to go to another dentist to get this done. And, and she did get it done. And sitting there thinking, man, it's just quite a bit for a single cavity. But, you know, everybody's different. Some people can probably do a colonoscopy or at least a sigmoidoscopy without any sedation whatsoever. I'm just not sure I would count myself in that bucket, you know? No, I'm not. Believe it or not, I'm not the best patient either. I've had one cavity in my entire life and I got on nitrous and I obviously was was anesthetized. I had four different ears on my front teeth. Uh, those were done without anesthesia. Um, I had nitrous for that. I was not numbed. And when I was younger, I got hit in the face with a baseball during baseball uh, Little League. And I was a kid then, and I had a tooth extracted without Novocaine. Um, I didn't want to be anesthetized. So I, I'm not the best dental patient myself, but um, I, I think I can handle that with nitrous really worked well. It got me into a a different state. Um, if you haven't had nitrous, I highly recommend it though. And uh, and obviously, I avoided. I w- I'm I'm not a huge fan as a patient to be put to sleep for things. Um, but there are some people, like you said, that just have no other way of doing treatment. And you know, you get a shot in the arm, and they they um, they don't inti- imp- uh, intubate you. They put a shot in the arm, um, and you go to sleep, and you're resting, and you wake up as like the best sleep of your life is what I hear. Um, but it's it's made for some patients and other patients don't need it. And I mean, that's that's kind of how it goes. 
Yeah, I think it really needs to be for the right patient, and they do need to be monitored. I think it's easy to become cavalier about delivering anesthesia, but if you remember what happened to Michael Jackson in his house, you know, the cardiologist unskilled in providing propofol, and then he got propofol and ultimately died. Um, that was mainly, well, it was an indication issue, but it was also a monitoring issue and knowing how to give, how much, and how to resuscitate. And and while uh, almost, I would imagine most practices will never need to formally resuscitate a patient with sedation, we've certainly worked with practices that have been on the receiving end of, you know, where they've called 911 in the middle of a procedure when things got out of control. So it's it's easy to become cavalier. I think if you have the right approach for the right patient who understand the risk and you've got the uh, the right setup to get it done, then yes, it does make sense. But um, we should never be lulled into this false sense of security that um, it's just another procedure and um, the risk is low. The risk is generally low, but it's not zero. Yes, I agree 100% with you. And with that, we're at the end of our broadcast. Thanks for joining us. In closing, a few messages. If you're an existing member of medical or dental justice and you find yourself on the receiving end of a medical legal threat, please contact us at 1-877-MEDJUST. That's 1-877-MEDJUST or 633-5878. Our STAT hotline is a service offered to all current members. It's designed to get your urgent medical legal questions answered ASAP. Members can also access a plethora of exclusive medical legal resources by logging into their members-only page, which can be accessed by our website, medicaljustice.com. Now, we want to protect as many doctors as possible. If one of your colleagues is in trouble, please refer him. When a current member of medical justice refers a colleague and that colleague becomes a member, you both receive a month of free protection. To refer a colleague, write to us at infonews, that's I-N, Epizen Frank O News at medicaljustice.com. That's info news at medicaljustice.com. Now, before we close, one last request. If you enjoyed this episode, please write a review on your preferred podcast provider and share our podcast with your colleagues. Reviews help maintain our podcast visibility, which in turn helps us reach a broader audience. This helps us protect more doctors. Thank you for joining us this week. We hope you'll join us on the next episode of the Medical Liability Minute.